uh, during the, the service today. Uh, last year, I refinanced my house, and that refinance triggered a need for an appraisal, if you've ever been through that situation. So you're buying a house or you're refinancing a house. The bank, in order to give you the money, has to appraise your home and make sure it appraises for a certain amount that they're going to give you. And so the appraiser came over, and I just sort of wandered around with him as he looked at my house. I was probably a bother, honestly, but I, you know, I just wanted to see what he was saying about my house. And so he pointed out a couple of cracks that I had in some walls. And he said, you, you know, you see those cracks? And I was like, yeah, but, you know, you see them, and then you don't see them anymore. You know they're there, but they're your house, so you don't pay attention to them anymore. And he said, see, these visible cracks are pointing to something you can't see. And, of course, I knew what he was going to say, but what did he say? A shifting foundation. Your foundation has shifted, and therefore your walls have sort of shifted, and you can tell it's happened because you have a a crack in your walls. And so when we take a look at this idea this morning, we're going to look at, at a shift in our foundation. And if we don't take care of the shifts in our foundation, whether that's as a member, a, a person, a shift in the foundation as a church or as a nation, cracks will eventually begin to appear. You may not be able to see the shift right away. It may take some time for the cracks to actually show up. But whether you're building a family, whether you're building a church, or whether you're building a nation, if you shift off the fundamental foundational principles of God's word, then cracks are going to begin to appear. And if those shifting, if the shifting somehow doesn't get addressed, the cracks will eventually cause crumbling. It won't just be cracks. The building will begin to start splitting apart or a life will begin to start split apart, or a nation will begin to split apart. And so that's what we have here when we think about the kings. Uh, uh, We're going to examine the lives of three successive kings, Solomon, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam. And they each sort of fall one after another. And and each life represents a, a shift. Now, there's more than one, perhaps, in each life, but we're just going to examine one sort of fundamental shift in each of these three men's lives, and we're going to see that 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 shift was left unaddressed. And and they just did, they saw the cracks, but they thought the shift maybe wasn't that significant, and because the, the, the shift was left unaddressed, eventually the kingdom of Israel collapses. Now let's just try to get some orientation because this is personally helpful for me. I'm a linear thinker. So if you describe something to me, and you probably will at some point, it's best to say the first thing, the second thing, the third thing. My wife's a random thinker. So it's just whatever comes up. So if I, if she says, hey, did you go to their house? What's their house like? I say, well, you walk in the door, and you're in this little area, and to the right, and to the, I'm just all, total sequential, and she's like, you can see just glassy-eyed. What does she want? What did you feel like when you walked in? What was the mood? What, she just wants different feelings. But I think when, you, when you're trying to get a scope of the Bible, it's helpful to have an understanding of where we are. So basically around 2000 B.C., we have Abraham. 
That's Genesis chapter 12, this first big person who comes onto the screen after Adam, so to speak. And Abraham has this son, Isaac, who has Jacob, who has Joseph, and then we end up in Egypt. And so that basically takes about 500 years, and then you have Moses. And here's this next big person who comes on the screen, and Moses comes in around 1500 B.C. And you know, Moses takes the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and then Joshua takes the people from the wilderness into the promised land or into the land of Canaan. And so Joshua is the first great general who begins to establish this new land called Israel. And behind him are a series of military leaders that the Bible calls, causes, calls judges. So each one of these judges, whether it's Gideon or Deborah or Samson or whichever one you're talking about, they're sort of military leaders, and they're trying to establish the boundaries of Israel. And then when you get to the very end of Judges, you see that Judges sort of ends in chaos because it ends this way. Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's chaos. If you have a nation who just does whatever's right in their own eyes, you have a crumbling nation. And so this chaos creates, when you turn from Judges into 1 Samuel, everyone's looking for a king. Everybody's looking for this leader. And so then we have a succession of kings. The first king is Saul, the second one is David, and the third one is Solomon. So we've gone from 2,000 to 1,500 to Moses to the kings are about 1,000. So just in a simple way, you can see we're covering that 1,000 years. And now we're at about 1,000 B.C., and we have Saul, David, and Solomon. They're the ones that are the kings over the whole united nation of Israel. And then after this, those kings, the nation splits into two. And uh, then there's a north and south. And we'll talk about that. Now, if you were to look at 1 Kings chapter 6, you would see that this was sort of the high point of Israel. Solomon sort of represents the peak of the nation of Israel. Sam did a good job talking about this last week. And it came when, when the temple was finally finished. So you know if you look at CNN or any kind of news show and they show a visual picture of Israel, what do you always see in the picture? You see some round sort of golden bullet-like dome, and that's called what? The Dome of the Rock. That's the Muslim mosque. That was where the temple was located. That's where Solomon built this temple. It's now since become a Muslim mosque, and I don't need to give you a history lesson on that, but that's where it, the temple was. That's where it, uh, Solomon built that temple. And then I just want to read for you, and you don't have to turn there, but Second Chronicles chapter 7, when uh, Solomon finishes the temple... He has this long prayer, and then he describes what happens here. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So Solomon finishes this prayer, fire comes down, consumes these sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord comes down, fills the temple, and the priest couldn't enter the temple. Because the glory of the Lord, it was was like this power pouring out of the temple. They couldn't even enter in. When all the people of Israel saw that the fire had come down and the glory of the Lord upon the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. 
His steadfast love endures forever. Second Chronicles chapter 7. That's the, that's the high point. That's the peak. That's the, the apex of, of Israel. And unfortunately, just as Solomon's prayer fades, so does his faith. It's like he has this great prayer, and, and you see this great thing, but it's just like as, as his words start to fade out, his faith starts to, to fade out as well. And his faith, his, his shifting off the foundation, actually creates the first visible crack. And the first visible crack is Israel, which used to be the United Kingdom, is now divided into two, north and south. The southern kingdom, which is called Judah, is taken over by a guy named Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son. And the northern kingdom, which is the larger of the two, is taken over by Jeroboam. And so those are the three kings we're going to look at. These three kings, Solomon and then Rehoboam and then Jeroboam, all who had shifted away from God's foundational principle. And this is where I want to look at Second Chronicles 36 which is I ask you to turn to 2 Chronicles 36, 14. So remember, the high point is 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now here's the low point, the very end of Chronicles, verse, beginning with verse 14. All the officers of the priests and the people, so all the people who worked in the temple, and then all the people who came to the temple, They were exceedingly unfaithful. They followed after all the abominations of the nations. They polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, these prophets, They despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Imagine that. Therefore, God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. And had no compassion on the young man or virgin, the old man or aged God gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, of the princes, and all those he brought to, all of those he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all of its precious vessels. We had this peak in second, in second, uh, Chronicles chapter seven, and now we definitely have the low point. It, it took 350 years to get from, from chapter seven to chapter 36. You see, the shift began with Solomon. And the cracks begin to appear, and God sent messengers or prophets saying, there's a shift in your foundation, you've got to do something with it. But what happened? 
The successive kings didn't move back to the foundation. They, they disregarded what the prophet said. And finally, the whole thing comes crumbling down. The temple comes crumbling down, and so does the, wall, the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the reason I want us to really try to absorb that, that the shift occurs, and 350 years later, the actual crumbling happens. The reason I want you to absorb that is a shift might be occurring in your life right now. And the crumbling might not be seen for 350 years. You hear what I'm saying? It looked good for Solomon's life. But his family and his nation were crushed by his shift. You right now could be making choices. You are making some choices right now that 350 years from now could cause a crushing defeat for your family, maybe for a nation. Or, of course, you could be making good choices that 350 years from now could be producing something great. But see, it's not just about your lifetime. And that's what I'm trying to get us off of in this first point. It's not just how well is it going to go for you for 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 years. How is it going to be in 350 years because of the choices I make right now? We live in a time warp that's just so tight that history was 15 minutes ago. And all that matters is what's happening to me right now. And what I'm trying to help you understand is you're making decisions for your family right now that in two generations might be crushing your family. And you're never going to see it. But they're going to feel the, the ripple effects of the choices you're making this week. Now, not every choice is going to have that impact, but some choices are going to have that impact. And we see it clearly here in the lives of Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So the first person I just want to look at very briefly, because Sam did a good job talking about Solomon last week. The first king is Solomon. And, and let's just remember Solomon's primary problem. He, his primary, primary problem were untamed passions. This is his first shift. He has untamed passions. As, as Solomon grew older, as Solomon grew, grew wealthier, he ended up having a passionate affair with his passions. Solomon ended up having a passionate affair with his own passions. And he neglected the word of God. And when he neglected the word of God, his passion for God began to wither and fade. Turn back with me. This is a passage that we, we, I ask you to look at. Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is a, a critical passage to understand whenever you're looking at the, at the, at first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. Because here's God's gold standard for how a king is supposed to operate. He understands that there is going to be a king. So in the law, he says, this is how I want the king to work. Uh, De Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. When you come to the land, this is the promised land, the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I'll set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You should not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only 
Now listen, verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. That's important. So we're not going to get many horses, and we're definitely not going to go to Egypt to get many horses. Since the Lord had said, you should never return that way again. Verse 17, you shall not acquire many wives for yourself, lest your heart be turned away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold or silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne, so don't do these things. 16 and 17, do do these things, verse 18, when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and he may learn to fear the Lord as God and keep all the words in the law and his statutes and do them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. We don't want somebody who's going to be arrogant. That he might not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left. That he may continue long in this kingdom. He and his children, see what the king is doing is going to have an effect on his children and on Israel. Now let's turn and try to compare that to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. So you understand Deuteronomy, this is God's gold standard for the king. Now we're coming to Solomon, and let's just take a look at Solomon's life. Chapter 10, verse 14. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Skipping down to uh, verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as a sycamore. And Solomon imported the horse, and Solomon's import of horses was from where? Egypt. And the king's traders received them, and chariots could be imported from Egypt, verse 29, for 600 shekels of silver and horsemen for 150, so that through the king's traders they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings and kings of Syria. Reading now in the first three verses of chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And just listen, Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives did what? Turned away his heart. So, you look at the gold standard, Deuteronomy chapter 17, you just come and look at Solomon's life, excessive silver and gold, check, got that. Many horses imported from Egypt, yep, check, got that. Not many wives. Well, a thousand, I think, qualifies for many. Two qualify for many. 
But a thousand certainly doesn't. And it, he clung to these in love. And I just, as I saw, as I sat this week and just thought about this, I wonder how many times Solomon said this, just one more. Just one more piece of gold. Just one more horse. Just, just one more wife. If I could just have one more, <clears throat> then I would be satisfied. And in all of his wisdom, Solomon couldn't figure out that his desire for one more actually fueled his desire for what? For one more. See, you get that one more and you say, that's enough. And until some space goes along and you say, oh, I just got to have one more. Well, you have 700 wives. How many more do you need? This wise man had these untamed passions. And he actually describes himself. Proverbs twenty five twenty eight. This is a proverb of Solomon. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. He describes himself. And he describes what's going to happen 350 years later. I'm a man who has no walls because I have no self-control. My, my untamed passions completely have consumed me. And so Solomon has two glaring weaknesses. There's many, many more, but two specifically. He has no spiritual discipline. What is the king supposed to do? Take the law, write it down, read it every day. But see, he had a passionate affair with his passions. And when he gave up reading the word of God every day, his passions for his passions grew. Instead of his for his passions for the Lord. And he had no accountability for whatever reason. And Sam did a good job talking about this last week. No one held Solomon accountable. Who wrote this in the Bible? Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Who said that? Solomon. You want to say, dude, you're writing it down. This is awesome. Pay attention. Pay attention to what you're saying. When you fall down and you don't have anybody to help you up, you're done for. And so Solomon's saying, I'm a man who doesn't have self-control. Well, guess what's going to happen, Solomon? You're going to be overrun by your own passions. And I don't have anyone to help me back up. Guess what? You're sunk. So these two critical things every person has to have, he lacks. There's all kinds of ways we can think of application. But just how are you doing on your own spiritual disciplines? I mean, how many times this week did you get up and say, I've got to make God's word a priority? Because if I don't make God's word a priority, something will become a priority. And I can tell you what that something's going to be, your passion. Whatever you're passionate about. Your work, your family, your sleep. You're going to have a passion. 
And secondly, do you have any real, real accountability? Not fake accountability that you get in the hallway out here. How's everything going? Good. Okay, good. Great. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody can sit down and say, you're going in the wrong direction. You've fallen into a pit. You need somebody to pull you out of it. Do you have that? If you don't have those two things, you're in a dangerous place. Your foundation can easily shift. And again, you may not see it. It may not seem dangerous to you today. But it'd be crushing your family and the future. Rehoboam, 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon's primary problem, his passions. Rehoboam, his primary problem is his pride. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And so after Solomon dies, you see it in, in uh, chapter 12, he decides he's going to take over. And the way he takes over is he goes to this town called Shechem. And Shechem is basically centrally located. It's the middle of Israel, and he's trying to get everybody basically to get behind him to solidify him as the king. And there was a man named Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam was a person who worked for Solomon. And Jeroboam is like the union boss. Jeroboam is the guy who's who who's the the CEO of the blue collar crowd underneath Solomon. There's all kinds of building projects. So they need the masons and the stone cutters and all that kind of stuff. And they need somebody to sort of run the unions. And so they say, Jeroboam, you're a gifted leader. You be the union boss. And so the union boss, Jeroboam, who's got a lot of power, comes to Rehoboam, who's now trying to set himself up as king. And he says this to, to uh, Jeroboam, or Rehoboam. He basically says in verses 4 and 5, hey, our taxes are too high. Does this sound familiar? There's, there's a new administration coming in. And the, the people are saying, hey, the, the old administration, the taxes were too high. This is very applicable today. And so when we have a new administration, we're, kind of, we're coming saying, let's not do it like the old administration. And Jeroboam brings his blue-collar crowd and says, hey, if you could lower our taxes, then we'll serve you forever. That's the offer. So Rehoboam then says, well, let me get some counsel about that. First Kings chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon. So Solomon had his administration. Some of those guys were still alive. And he says, what should I do? Jeroboam is coming saying I should lower the taxes. And how do you advise me to answer the people? That's the end of verse 6. And then these wise men, verse 7, said, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them. When you answer them, they will be your servants forever. Now, this is a great, I don't have time for this, but this is a great description of biblical leadership. If you would be a servant, serve them, speak good words, then they'll be your servants forever. Essentially, these wise men are coming to Rehoboam and saying, Rehoboam, if you could divert your passions today, you'll pick them up in the end. You hear what he's saying? Today, you've got to serve them. But if you get up underneath them, then forever they're going to serve you. Now, Rehoboam came from Solomon's house. Do you think Rehoboam was going to take that advice? Uh, no. 
Why? Because he had seen his whole life Solomon's passions were in control. So Rehoboam doesn't like that, and he completely rejects that advice. Verse 8. And in his pride and his arrogance, he says, no, I'm not going to take that advice. I'm abandoning the counsel of the old men. Why? Because Rehoboam wasn't looking for advice. Rehoboam already knew what he wanted. And so he was just going to look for people who would firm what he already wanted. Have you ever done that? You already have in mind what you want. You come to me and I don't affirm that. And you say, I'm rejecting that. So you go to somebody else and they say, well, I'm affirming that. And you say, well, here's the smart guy right here. Why? Because you already know what you want. And when a smart person comes into the room, if they're not with you, then, you know, just abandon that. That's pride. He, he doesn't weigh it against. It's not like he gets the, the this counsel and then gets this counsel and weighs it. He gets this counsel, rejects it, and says, i got to go get some other counsel. I just need to hear from people who already want me to do what I want to do. Does that make sense? This is a terrible leadership characteristic. This is a huge shift off the foundation. What a fool. What comes right before a great fall, according to Solomon? pride see shifts off the foundation and cracks begin to appear verse 16 and 17 chapter 12 and when all israel this is the northern kingdom this is jeroboam saw that the king rehoboam did not listen to them the people answered the king What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Let's get back to our own nation. Look now to your own house, David. Crack. Now it's going to be Israel and Judah. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived only in Judah. The people in the northern kingdom basically staged the Boston Tea Party. We don't like the taxes. And we're splitting off. Now, again, lots of application here. But but one of the most challenging aspects of being a Christian, and I think one of the most hardest things to humble yourself if you're coming in to Christianity, is to submit to God's word. That your word isn't the last word. This is one of the hardest things to do. You come with an opinion, you come with an emotion, you come with a desire, and you want it to be a certain way, and then you find God saying, no, that's not right. And then you say, well, let me find another passage. Or, you know, that's old, or that's not the way they think anymore. There's a hundred different ways you try to scurry around it. But when you come to Christ, you sit underneath his word. He does not ever sit underneath your word. And if you can't do that, you have a big pride problem. And when you have that, you have a big shift. Shift off of God's word, which is a rock, onto your word, which is sand, soon to come crashing down. Jeroboam. So we've seen Solomon, Rehoboam. I realize these names are sort of awkward. Now we have Jeroboam, this CEO or this union boss. Verses 27. 
Now, Jeroboam, his big problem is that people were big and God was small. His fear of man dominated his faith in God. If you were to go back to 1 Kings chapter 11, just turn back with me there, verse 37. God comes to Jeroboam, and he says this, 1137. I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires. Now just imagine God saying this. And you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you and you walk in my ways and do what's right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David, my servant, did, I'll be with you. I'll build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give you Israel. Wow. You're going to be with me. You're going to be, build me a house just like David. In other words, you're going to be with me all the way through. I, I can't even imagine how stunned Jerobo, Jeroboam must have been. But, but something went wrong. He had all these promises, but something's gone wrong here. And what's gone wrong is is fear has dominated faith. Chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. So these are two different cities. And Jeroboam, just listen carefully, Jeroboam said... In his heart. This is a tiny little closet when you say in your heart. Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up and offer sacrifices to the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. And then their heart, the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they'll kill me. And they'll return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, this is sort of in the southern part, and the other he put in Dan in the northern part. Then this thing became a sin for the people as they, as far as Dan and before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not from the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. See, he's just making up now his own religion. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places had made, verse 33, he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel, and on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised in his own heart, he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and he went up to the altar to make, off, the altar to make offerings. Let's just understand what's happening. First of all, he looks and says, everybody's going to go back to Jerusalem to, to do worship, right? That's where the temple is. And when they go back, they're going to see Rehoboam. And they're going to say, oh, we should just live with Rehoboam. So Jeroboam doesn't trust God's promises. He becomes fearful. I'm afraid the people, I'm afraid of the people, and I'm afraid they're going to kill me. And so I basically set up my own religion. Now, this may be one of the most important parts here. But the first problem Jeroboam has is he trusts in his own thoughts rather than what God has already said. He, get, he locks himself in a tiny closet of his own mind, and whatever he thinks in his mind, that's what's true. 
And so many of us suffer from this. You get locked in your own mind and you devise schemes to say, this is, this must be what happens. This must be what this person thinks. This must be reality. And it's not reality at all. He's, God's already told Jeroboam, I'm going to establish your kingdom. All you have to do is rely on me. And Jeroboam says, well, what about all these people? I'm afraid of them. And so he, he abandons the expansive perspective of God, and instead he lives with this the tiny, limited, self-centered, fear-driven perspective of his own. The second problem he has is that people got big and God got small. This is on the front of your bulletin, but such great words from Ed Welch. From his book with a great title, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Listen, the fear of man wields awesome power. Pay attention if you're in college or a high school student. The fear of man, the fear of your peers, the fear of other people wields awesome power. The praise of others, this is how he describes it, that wisp of a breeze that lasts for a moment. What a great description. The praise of man, it's a wisp, can seem more glorious than the praise of God. Teenagers are constantly making unwise decisions because of it. Adults, too, look for people to, for their cures. We spend too much time wondering what other people may have thought about our outfit. <clears throat> Sorry. And our comment during a conversation. People become idols. Because we perceive they have power to give us something. And what is the result of this idolatry? This is such a great understanding. The idol we choose to worship soon owns us. People become huge and they rule us. They tell us how to think, what to feel, how to act, what to wear, what we must laugh at, that we must laugh at, a dirty joke. Yet the whole strategy backfires. We never expect that using people to meet our desires leaves us enslaved to them. You hear what he's saying? This is so excellent. I've got to have your positive feedback. And that feels like it gives me life, but what is it doing? It's creating a prison. As all idols do. One of my chief concerns, if you're here and you're a high school student or a college student, is this right here. That in your life, people would be big and God would be small. So you would hear the noise from the culture, the pollution from the culture. And then you would hear this word on a Sunday morning and say, ah, because it's so small. Because when you get into the classroom or you get into a party or you get around your friends, that voice is like a huge speaker. And what I'm saying is if you're listening to that voice, you are building yourself a prison. And you will live in that prison the rest of your life. You'll become an adult and you'll be worried about what people think you're wearing. This is ridiculous. When people are big and God is small, you shift off the foundation. And pretty soon cracks begin to appear, And then we have this one final thing, this fundamental shift in worship. Verse 28 and 29, you've gone to, to Jerusalem long enough. Man, that's a long drive to get to church. Let's make it easier. 
Does it sound contemporary? We don't want church to be too hard. I mean, it's got to be nice and comfortable. Can't be a good, really long distance. It's got to meet all your needs when you get here. Because you're the center. You're the most important thing about worship. Really, when we come to worship, we just come to worship ourselves. That's what Jeroboam has done. You're the most important thing in worship, so we've made it as easy as possible because we want you to be happy when you get here. It's an enormous shift. And then he begins to just make up a religion out of his own heart, verse 33. See, what Jeroboam does, and I want you to pay careful attention to this, he builds a nation who has an appetite for God, but only for a God on their own terms. This whole nation does have an appetite for God, but it's only an appetite that God meets them on their own terms. Can you imagine living in such a nation? See, when you shift off the foundation like Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, cracks will soon appear. You could crumble. Church could crumble. A family could crumble. A nation could crumble. You may not see it in your lifetime. But 350 years from now, if you'd made a different choice today, it might be different. Again, so many pieces of application on this last point. The spiritual leadership of your family, of this community, of our nation is never going to come from a political office. We're never going to elect a savior. Spiritual leadership emanates from the church or doesn't emanate from the church. And so we have to examine ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, am I really just hungry for a God who meets me on my own terms? I can't be bothered to go too hard, to go too far. I can't be bothered to do stuff I really don't like. Then maybe you have an appetite for a God who doesn't really exist. Listen to these very stinging words from this commentary, and I'll close here. When nations perish in their sins, it is in the church that leprosy begins. Turn with me, 2 Kings 17. When God had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the king, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam, here's Jeroboam's legacy, 350 years later. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. This is 300 years later. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had spoken by all the servants and the prophets, so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. What a legacy. 
So the first question we always have to ask is, do you know the true king? This whole whole downward spiral is helping you see none of these human kings are going to be enough. There's got to be another king. And that's Jesus. And we're, we're moving in his direction quickly. But, but my broader question from these passages is, have you made any shifts in your foundation? Any place where your passions for your passions are greater than your passion for the Lord. It may be small now, but cracks will soon appear. Any place where pride or arrogance, you already know what you think. You're only looking for people to affirm what you already think. You're in trouble. Any place like Jeroboam that that people are big in your life and God is, is small. Let's pray together. Lord, this is such a compelling biography of these three men. So important that we hear this message today for ourselves, for our church, for our family, for our city, for our nation. You, you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help people, people react, turn around, turn away from an idol to the true king, from the way of walking in the darkness to the way of walking In the light we pray. Lord, help us then to walk out into our city. Give ourselves away for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.